I'm Romy Newman, the co-founder and president of Fairy God Boss, and this is Fairy God Boss Radio. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me here today. I'm Romy Newman, the co-founder and president of Fairy God Boss, and today I am doubly pleased to be joined by a dynamic duo from the New York Times. I feel very privileged to be here with Meredith Levine, who's the COO of the New York Times, and with Hannah Yang, who is the SVP of Consumer Revenue. I would love for you to introduce yourselves. Tell us about yourselves. Tell us about your background, and how did you end up at the wonderful New York Times. Hannah, I'm going to make you go first. Yeah, so I have a bit of an unusual background for somebody who does what I do. I actually started off as a corporate attorney, um, and that was a very short career. I realized very quickly that um, that is not really where my strength and passion lie, and so got some great advice um, during that early part of my career um, where being on the business side of media was an idea that I didn't have on my own. Somebody who mentored me um, kind of put that idea in my head, and I pursued that path and ended up where I am today. I joined the Times about 10 years ago, and it's been an amazing ride. I have been on the consumer side of the business the whole time I've been here, but my role has varied Quite a bit. Every few years, I had a new challenge, um, and little by little, I um, ended up taking on more responsibility. I had managers who were amazing and supportive, and really trusted me to take on more. And before I knew it, I ended up with this big giant job. And every day, I walk into work wondering how this happened. <laughs> so that's sort of like a summary of how I got here. But there's a lot of complexities along the way. There always are. How a recovering attorney (laughs) becomes the head of subscription growth at the New York Times is quite a story. But also, I think for our listeners who don't know, the New York Times has an amazing success story in terms of how, um, despite kind of overarching media trends, you all have really grown and successfully built a huge profitable business out of subscription sales at the New York Times, which is incredible. And I'm so privileged to know Meredith Levine, who has been a huge force of growth and success for the New York Times over the past several years. Um, So Meredith, tell us about you and how did you become so involved and invested in helping the New York Times achieve the success it's having? Well, it's let me first say thanks so much for having us. It's fun and good. It's fun to be here together and just good to be here talking with you. Um, I think Hannah and I would both say that it is the great privilege of our careers to work at the New York Times. I've been here for six years. Um, gosh, maybe even this week, six years. And I tell people that the, the day I walked in the building six years ago for my interview, um, I had this profound sense of, of walking in to a really important place. Like I felt this this real sense of that. Um, the first time I came in and, you know, six years later, I can say I have felt that way every single day that I've, I've been here. That does not abate. I feel lucky to work on, um, on a mission that matters so much in the world and with a group of people who um, hold themselves to a standard of, of excellence in both journalism and, and 
um, on the business side as well. So it's it's been a ball. Um, I've spent most of my career now working on the business side of media. I was a college journalist and also worked on the business side of my college newspaper. And, you know, if you went back and looked, you know, I worked on my middle school newspaper. I worked on my high school newspaper. So I've just... So you know, you've I've, been with I've, it since the beginning. I love I, it. I've, you know, I think my parents would say she was always a very serious person. And she was <laughs> going to work on something very serious in the world. And so I definitely feel like I um, get to do the work that I'm, I'm most suited to do. And, and because of that, and also because of the moment we're in in the world, it's particularly fun. You know, we're, we're in a moment in the world where the demand for the thing that The Times does, quality, original, independent journalism, um, is very, very high. And to me, it seems like there's, there's no signs that that will abate. The world is only getting more complex. Um, and people have more, not fewer, ways to, to get journalism. And so I think that the work we're doing here is really about, um, you know, getting getting millions more people to spend much more time with, with quality, original, independent journalism, and specifically with Times journalism. Well, I love it. And I, I have to say, we've, we've recorded many episodes of this podcast, and I've never had somebody say to me before, it's a privilege to work where I do. So I think that that alone is a pretty incredible statement, and it's such a testament to how much you love what you work on, and, and it comes through. Um, and, I, you know, if we all need a reason to get up in the morning, that sounds like a pretty great one. Uh, you've, you've had a pretty extraordinary career, you both have, and you've worked in different um, environments and disciplines. Since Fairy God Boss is a career community all about advancing women's careers, talk to me a little bit about how gender has played a role in your career. Hannah, you said, for example, that you started at a law firm right out of school. You worked at some regional newspapers then before joining the New York Times. Did you ever uh, feel like, wow, this situation would have been different for me if I wasn't a woman? Yes, definitely. It's hard to separate out my ethnicity from my gender. In a way, I sort of grouped the whole being an Asian woman together, if you will. My um, taking a pretty big risk early in my career to leave this very high, like, very prestigious, high-paying job um, at Simpson Thatcher and Barley, where I was a corporate attorney right out of law school. Um, and I wonder whether I would have had that courage to leave if I were an Asian man. And I say that because I do think that in our culture, um, there's been more pressure on men to sort of take on these established um, professions, especially um, among immigrant families. My sister was sort of pegged to become the doctor, I was pegged to become the lawyer, and my brother was pegged to be an engineer. Well, my sister is now um, head of a beauty startup. Um, <laughs> I am now working at the Times, running a subscription business. My parents, they don't really know what I do, but they're just proud that I'm here um, supporting journalism. And my brother is actually an engineer. And it wow. happens that profession that he was pegged to go into ended up being something he's absolutely passionate about. Um, but I, I do wonder sometimes whether I would have sort of stuck with the law if I were a man. Well, I was, I was wondering when you made the decision to make that move, how did you find that courage? And, and what was the cue for you? One thing that I felt very strongly about, even as a small child, was that I wanted to make impact in the world somehow. I wanted to make this place a better place to live for people. And I didn't know what tools 
I would have in my hands to be able to do that. And I thought I could do that with the law. And a lot of people do that with the law very effectively. So many of my classmates from law school ended up doing amazing things for society, still do. But I just knew that that wasn't really where my strengths lie. Um, And so knowing that I had this deep conviction since I was a little girl that I wanted to do something that's going to make this place a better place to be, I said, you know what, these are not the tools that I'm going to be best at, so I'm going to find what those things are. And I had a six-month stint as a journalist, if you even call it that. Um, I worked at CBS News um, in one of their sort of entry-level positions, working for 60 Minutes, too. And I quickly found out that that wasn't the right place for me either. And this is when I was going through a lot of sort of, (laughs) it it was a difficult time in my career, uh, to say the least. And that's where I met Susan Zrensky, who's making headlines right now, uh, basically running CBS News. And she's the one who took me under her wings. And I was pretty much a nobody at the time. But she made time for me and said, have you thought about being on the business side of journalism to basically make journalism thrive um, and using your legal skills and maybe business skills to be able to do that? That's the first time anybody has said anything like that to me. And that's pretty much what I ended up doing. And I realized looking back now, um, that was 18 years ago she said this to me, that that was absolutely the right place for me to be in order to make change. And I think that I honestly have the best tools in place, and I am doing what I was supposed to do, although I have to say that there's a part of me that still wants to be a journalist, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. Yeah. And it just shows the importance of passing the hand back and what a, diff- I mean, what a huge difference it has made to your career Meredith, tell me about you and where you think uh, gender has played a role along the way in your career. I would say I um, was always aware um, of being a woman. And, and, you know, when I, there was a period pretty early in my time at the New York Times where I was the only woman on the executive committee. And it wasn't until two more women came and joined the executive committee here that I really felt and understood what it had meant to be the only woman in the room. And it was like they got here and these, you know, like cinder blocks fell off my shoulders. And what became very clear to me was that when I was the only woman in the room, I spent a lot of time thinking about how whatever it was I had to say would be perceived. And so then I spent a lot of energy on, well, how do I say it? And is that coming out the the right way? And once there were other women in the room, it was like, nobody's paying attention to that anymore. So I can just think about what is the answer to the question, or do I have something to say um, about the problem at, at hand? And so for me, it was like the realization that um, everybody only brings so much energy to the table every day, and what is that energy being used on? And if you're the only whatever it is in the room, woman, uh, non-binary person, person of color, um, you're spending time thinking, or at least in my experience, I was spending time thinking about the how to say things, and my energy could have been spent um, in, in other ways. And, and that just has made me think a lot generally about representation in leadership at work. And to me, so much of what will make it better for women, for people of color, for any underrepresented group is just more representation at every level of the organization, including the top. 
Absolutely. I'll say one other thing. Had I not been a woman, I probably would have spent a whole lot less time thinking about what to wear. (laughs) And the hair. I know. I I feel you. And my hair. Yeah. (laughs) Still working on that. So how do you both, now that you've really established clout and positions of power, how do you think about bringing up other women behind you? I'll I'll give a quick answer to that, which is, I mean, I, I... that it's something we both think about a lot. Um, to me, it's about the assignments. It's about how do you make sure that um, you're giving uh, people who you want to have come along media assignments, the one that require both strategy work and operations or, or executional work. And I would say for me, you know, going from being a manager to a leader to an executive was about an exercise in going from being able to execute to being able to operate to being able to sort of think strategically while doing those other other two things. So looking at um, bringing other women along for me has been much about making sure they have assignments where they're doing all three of those things. And add to that, I do think that... Um more women, they struggle with speaking out more in public. Um, At least in my experience, more women have come to me um, asking for advice on how to be more confident in front of people and convey their work more effectively in front of senior leadership. And so I've been very proactively trying to create opportunities for these women who have expressed that they struggle with this to be in front of leadership more because it's practice that's only going to make you better at it, nothing else. Um, And I think that just creating those opportunities that feel safe um, is something that I try to think about at every meeting and um, every project. The other thing that I do um, proactively is that so much of my life experience has to do with the fact that I'm a woman and I'm a woman with two children, and um, I have, over the years, become more open about my personal life and the struggles that I've gone through to get to where I am, and men and women both can relate to that, Um, but probably women more just because they just um, empathize more with some of the things that I deal with in terms of work-life balance, and so I open up my vulnerabilities more. I talk about things that could make me look disorganized or um, not capable, but that's okay because to me, um, bringing that human side to work is really important for people to feel like they can bring their full selves to work. And, and I, that is something that I've, I've myself as a leader gotten more courage over the years to be able to do and feel like I feel safe being able to do that. You sound like a Brene Brown fan. She writes all about how to be a courageous leader by bringing vulnerability to the table. I mean, Hannah and I talk a lot with one another about how hard the balancing act is of, you know, feeling like you're effectively leading a team or accomplishing something at work and also feeling like you're being a present parent and spouse and daughter and all those other things. And I don't think and I think Hannah alluded to this, I don't think that's specific to being a woman. I think that's specific to being a parent, to being a spouse, to being a child of aging parents. And I think the more that the workplace is a place where 
that is acknowledged and well understood and, you know, context for how everyone is operating and what might have happened in the hour before someone arrives and what happens to them in the hour after they leave. I think the, the, it goes to the point I made in the beginning, the more energy people can just put into the work. Exactly. So can you give us both a little bit of context about your personal lives and how do you balance these big responsibilities with your children and your families? I have an eight-year-old son, which, Romy, you know because you see me at drop-off many (laughs) days during the school year. And what Romy will attest to is that my son is late to school almost every day (laughs) because it is very important to me that I take him to school every day. And so that means sort of getting done everything we both need to get done in the morning before both of our days start and sort of the, the... The ugly part on the other side of that is it doesn't often come with promptness, but we do get to spend the beginning of our our day together. So I have have a young son um, who I fought very hard to have and whose company I relish probably more than anyone else's on the planet. I have a husband who is also an executive. We are, are in a family where we're balancing two big careers and, you know, a lot of interest in our in our child's life and wanting to be very present for him. And I would say it always feels, I think, certainly to me and my husband, like a high wire act. And, and increasingly, it's just worth saying, and I think about this a lot related to the men on our team as well, you know, my husband is, is processing and dealing with a lot of the same things I am. How do I be present for a soccer game or a school event and also be at the things I, I need to be at for work. And I want to say I don't think that's a gender-specific thing. I think it is a company's acknowledging that their employees also, you know, are parts of families and participate in other areas of their lives. Right. And also the massive disconnect between the expectations of working hours and what schools expect from parents and all that. There's that, too. We can take that up in a whole other budget. Totally. Yeah, I'm always late, too, at drop-off, uh, <laughs> everything, actually. Uh, I agree with Meredith. Um, it, it does feel like a higher act. I, I also have a husband who has a very um, busy career that requires a lot of travel, and so we make it work. The two of us um, work really, really hard um, to make it all work, but sometimes it does feel like if one thing goes wrong, everything could crumble. One That's- sick day, and it's... That's right, or or a nanny doesn't show up or something. But we made it work so far. But what I do tell um, others is that there are times when things feel so difficult, right, to balance, that you may want to just take a break. That's okay. Um, And I did that in my career. There was a time when my child needed me for medical reasons, like 100% focused on him, and I quit altogether, and I spent four years at home taking care of him. And I came right back to my job again, like Susan Zerinsky. I had another mentor at the time who really helped me through this time and came back to work. And I look back, and I think that those four years actually shaped me into a much more empathetic human leader 
um, than I would have been and maybe if I didn't take that time off. So I tell people who are really struggling with balance because of some unusual circumstance like what I had that it's really okay to, if you can, of course, if you have the means to do it, to take time off and take care of yourself, take care of your loved ones, and then the career is always there for you. So balance to me, I don't see it as you have to do it all at once at the same time. Balance is over the course of your very long career, you can have balance. I, I think that's right, and I will add that I think there's a there's something in here about companies needing to grow and flex to the extent they see talent as their biggest competitive advantage. And certainly at the New York Times, we think that, you know, I think we are learning as a company to be a better, and we're, we're still in the early days of this, but learning to be a better employer of people who may need a flexible work arrangement or um, need, you know, want to, as Hannah described, um, do a different kind of work for a period of time. And I think we're, we're in the early days of learning how to accommodate that. And I think that's the future. Like, I, th- I think um, particularly companies that do creative work for a living or work that requires um, human endeavor first, which the Times certainly does, um, we're, we're going to need to keep learning within the confines of what it means to run a good business, how to bend and flex to the needs of our employee base. And I, I think we're in the early days of that. Um, I, I was the executive sponsor of the Times Women's Network when a group of um, four, probably more than that, but four that I can think of, very brave uh, women leaders in the business, a couple of whom happened to be on my team at the time, came to me and said, our family leave policy is insufficiently generous and we want to change it. And they, you know, sort of bravely brought forward um, to our executive team a, a really robust proposal to materially change that policy. Um, and we ultimately did it. Um, we changed it. And as part of that, um, sort of alongside it, was a notion that we would be even more encouraging a family leave broadly beyond women. And one of the things that I'm so encouraged to see um, just this year, sort of in my work at the Times, is, is a number of men on our team taking paternity leave. And to me, that's such a big unlock. You know, you, you don't get leadership teams that are equal um, in the end, if there aren't men taking paternity leave, which means, you know, if there aren't sort of men uh, shouldering a big part of the family responsibility and burden, too. So it, it feels like um, as a company and in society, we are at the dawn of a new era where we're just beginning to see a more equal work world and what is required of companies to create that. That's right. Well, I love it, and I think that's absolutely true, especially uh, with the millennial generation and beyond. There's just an expectation that work is more more results-oriented and flexible. All right, I'm going to ask you each a question that I hate being asked, which is uh, tell me about a mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? Who wants to take that one first? Hannah, I think you should go. <laughs> I can talk about a few mistakes I almost made. Does that count? <laughs> sure. I don't see why not. Let's, that sounds um, very instructive. There have been times in my career here at the New York Times where I was asked to take on work that at the face of it felt 
uncomfortable to me for whatever reason. And I almost said no. In terms of the content or the the volume of work? It's both. But uh, the first one was somebody asked me, was running Consumer Revenue at the time, um, a few of them actually, to take on the print business and run it. Um, and I didn't think for whatever reason that was the right job for me. I thought that could slow me down. There's too right. much No, that would be um, a crazy complexity. thing to do, just to know <laughs> that I did this job at the Wall Street Journal. But go on. Yeah, and then <laughs> – And um, I can the, why it's crazy. <laughs> and the, and the job on. I have now, to be frank, like I – the the way it's, it was a big risk that the senior leadership someone asked you to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually in front of her right now, um, and that job is something that we haven't had before. And there is a part of me that was extremely scared about whether I could actually tackle this job that seemed very daunting, um, complicated, um, and at both times, I sort of trusted my managers and leaders who um, asked me and said, okay, I'll try it out. Those are the best decisions I've ever made. And I um, learned uh, that I have to take those risks and I have to surround myself with people, uh, mentors, managers, who believe in me more than I believe in myself. And that's been the case with both scenarios. I mean, I think Meredith believes in me more than I believed in myself at that moment. And um, and she was absolutely right. The job I have now is the best job I've ever had, and I never thought that it would work out this way. Um, and, you know, sometimes your mentors and managers just know better than you, and you just have to sort of trust them and go with it. Um, so I know this is really bad advice, but I tell a lot of younger colleagues and my team just say yes to everything yeah. <laughs> which I know goes against until, a lot of advice to learn to say no right. um, if you know trust I, your manager if you trust the people who have like really mentored you um, and if they're advising you to do something just go with it and trust that they are making the right recommendation and I've been very lucky that I've had managers throughout my career here who've been just incredibly supportive so I know it's not applicable to everybody, but that's, you know, those are the two things that maybe I, I, I it would have been a really bad mistake if I said no to those. So I love so it. And me, I, me... I once read an article about regretologists. So these are people who study yeah. regret. And it turns out you regret the things you didn't do so much more than you ever regret the things you did totally. do. So that does say you should just say yes to everything. <laughs> totally. So, so I'm gonna. I've made. You know, I'm I'm 48 and a half, and I've been working for like 26 years. I think so. I've made a lot of mistakes, and I I want to actually broadly give you the zones that they've been in because actually, the the zones are places where I'm still working on self improvement. Uh, you know, to the benefit of others. And you know, one is um, just like not listening enough. Um, I came up in business through, um, you know, through, through ad sales and through sales. And if you're somebody who comes up through persuading, you talk a lot. Um, and so just having the discipline to really shut up and listen and give other people the space to talk um, is just, for me, something I'm, I'm going to probably be working on for the rest of my life. And the more I do it, the, the better I become. Um, and I, I keep saying I will be, um, I will be silent um, by my 80s <laughs> because, 
that would be how people can get the best out of me. That's one. Two, um, I would say, um, I, and, and this is one where I think I've actually made real strides, um, wasn't very good at at the beginning of my career, and many of my mistakes came as a result of it, and that is to just assume positive intent from the people around you, the bosses, the people working for you, um, peers. And, you know, the, the further along I go, the more I just believe most people are kind of in it for the company, they're in it for the team. And, like, if you can hold that assumption that the very few times you're not right, um, you're barely going to notice them. The, the benefit of just actually giving other people that sense of belief that they want the thing you want and the right thing um, has just pays, like, huge dividends. And then probably the last one and the one that I find myself most often passing on to my, to my team of leaders now is, um, and this is one that for me I've been working on particularly in the last few years, it's just to kind of hold things more loosely. Um, so, you know, all the times I can think of where um, something went wrong at work, either I um, caused something bad to happen by accident or I had the wrong idea for something or I approached something wrong, and then just how long I held on to that and the consequences of holding on to that for so long, or if somebody said something the wrong way to me and I, how long I held on to it, just all that energy of holding things tightly um, and not just kind of letting them go and getting on to the next thing is energy that is so richly deployed into, into more productive things. So I find myself often, um, you know, get, doing the self-reminder to, to not just to let something go or, or let it slide. And I, I, I would say that is probably the advice I give to the leaders around me most often as well. I love it. And I subscribe to whatever this thinking is. <laughs> it's great. And I will, I'm going to try to incorporate it all too, Meredith. I think that's lovely. All right. I'm going to ask some fun questions just to get to know you both better. Um, so I have to ask if either of you would like to recommend a book to our audience. It can be any kind of book you like, fiction, nonfiction, business, so, pleasure. I'll, I'll, I'll say, and I was better about this earlier in my career before I was oh, before I was a mother. I read I read a lot of Dogman books now and Captain Underpants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I, you know, I have always been a lover and reader of literary fiction, and find in a weird way, like I learn the most about how other people think and just how the world works as a result of that. So I do not read business books. I've never read business books. Um, and I spend, I've spent so much of my career working in serious news. I read a lot of that, but honestly, in the context of work. And when I'm going to try and transcend my day, you know, reading good literary fiction does it. And it, it, it has given me, I think, a better context for work. So my, my favorite book in that category um, is a book, an old book called A Fine Balance, um, which is about I don't know that historical one. It's, it's historical fiction about a period in the um, mid-70s in India under Indira Gandhi and during um, a period where a state of emergency had been declared. And it's about essentially the story of three families from three, three very different classes and um, their struggles. And of all the books I've ever read, it did the best job of sort of reminding me in a way that I still carry with me of just the 
how hard the human experience can be and therefore what we sort of need to do for one another and the consequences of not not doing it. It was a long answer to what was meant to be Love a short it. question. Love it. Well, we're going to check it out. Hannah, how about you? I don't have a, a philosophical answer <laughs> to that question. I wish I had more time to read. last book that I read that uh, was really fun was uh, Pachinko. Um, that is and book. that uh, was just a phenomenal piece of work. And I was able to interview Min Jin Lee, author, wow. when she came to the Times as a guest for our Times um, book club. And She's Korean, and she's also a, um, a former attorney who left her job as a corporate attorney to become a writer. So I had, wow. even though um, you know, I don't have a best-selling book, I felt like I had a lot Not in yet. common with her. <laughs> but it also was just a really interesting and fun way to understand um, Korean history in a way that I've never been able to um, before through academic studies. So that was great. Um, my mom wrote a book. Um, wow. In oh. Korea, she um, and I wouldn't advise people to read it because it had all kinds of um, embarrassing things about me as a child. But um, I do have to say that um, that is by far my favorite book of all time because my mother somehow found time during her um, very difficult immigrant life here to find time to write and write about her story as an immigrant here and about our lives and how she raised us. Um, here and um, that actually became a bestseller in Korea, and um, now there's like second edition. Anyway, so wow. that is That's I have amazing. to say the most meaningful book um, in my life. I love it. All right, you should interview so my mom. She's the one. You I know. know. She's Very the one who'll tell you all about balance. And so, who is one person, dead or alive, you would like to have dinner with? Hannah, can I throw that to you first? My high school English teacher, Miss Audrey McGinn, who's unfortunately um, passed away, but she's one of those mentors I've met in my life who came and believed in me more than I believed in myself. During high school, so I had immigrated here when I was nine years old, and even though I knew that I was filled with creative expression, I didn't have a lot of confidence in that area because English was my second language. And I sort of hid behind my strength in mathematical skills and science skills, and, and I played classical music. But writing and reading was something that I felt very insecure about, even though I felt like I had a lot to say. And she's the first person who made me believe that that's an area where I could actually um, – do well in. And so she's the one who helped me write confidently. um, And she um, sort of, because of that confidence when I got into college, even though I got in because of my strong sort of math and science grades, I ended up declaring um, a liberal arts major, where it was all about reading and writing. And I think that's because she helped me. And so she's somebody I would love to have dinner with. And um, tell her what's happened to my life since then and how much she's had an influence in me. Wow, that's lovely. And by the way, Hannah, it does sound like at some point you will follow in your mother's footsteps. I think there must be a book in there somewhere. There's definitely a book in there. All right. Would you both tell us what your karaoke song is? Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> it's the Levian family song. It's my son's I favorite song. I think he knows all the words. My husband, too. Hannah? 
Mine is a song that mo- nobody will recognize except maybe Koreans. It's a Korean song. I am Korean, so I mean, <laughs> I've only sang karaoke with other Koreans. <laughs> and it's a very um, the best way a to popular do it. pastime. So the song is called Miso Soge Bichin Um And it's by Shin Seung-hun, I think is his name. And it's like just the perfect sort of range for my vocal cords. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, that's a song that I whip out each time. Well, I mean, I have to get you ladies together <laughs> because I'm dying to hear it. It sounds amazing. All right, my last question, I'll throw to Hannah and then to Meredith. What is the one piece of career advice you'd like to leave behind with our audience today? You could have probably picked up on it from everything I've said. Um, surround yourselves with great mentors. You mm-hmm. you seem to have had really incredible mentors. All right, Meredith. I have. Well, I already gave you hold things more loosely. I think I'll add to it, um, bring a sense of otherness. Um, It is, you know, it isn't fundamentally about you or any one person. It's about sort of what the collective can do and make happen for one another, for the company, for whatever that company is trying to do in the world. And the heart, you know, the, the better you can hold on to that and know and believe the people around you are holding on to that, the better it will all go. Well, thank you both. Hannah, incredible to hear your story. It sounds like along the way you you benefited from taking risks, whether it was leaving your kind of prescribed path in law, whether it was taking on new assignments, and you had great nudging along the way from mentors and you're passing it back. Meredith, I'm I'm so inspired by your introspection and your um, – your ability to sort of ingest the whole picture and deliver the whole picture. Um, it's so easy, I think, in our workplace to get uh, it down in the weeds. And I love how you see the forest through the trees. And um, I, w- I will, following this recording, spend some time trying to hold things a little more loosely. I think it's great <laughs> advice. <laughs> well, thank you both so for spending time. Thank hey, can I say one more thing before we go? I Please. do feel like... It doesn't get said enough in the world, and it's part of why I wanted us to come and do this together, um, how much women help one another um, at work. And I just I, I, I want to say my career, Hannah, Hannah described this in her career. I think we would both say our careers have been pushed and pressed and prodded along um, in no small part by the women around us. And I just, I can't say enough about that. I wouldn't be where I am today were it not for the sort of, you know, rugby scrum slash hug slash <laughs> personal board of directors um, around me that is made up so much um, by women who have been my clients and my peers and my bosses and the women who work on my team. And I just, I don't think enough is said Um, in the world about how much women help other women at work. I love it. And uh, it's almost on cue because Fairy God Boss is all about women helping women. And uh, so I'm so grateful to you both for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Such a pleasure. See you soon. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye, Bye, ladies. Thanks for joining us today on Fairy God Boss Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and visit us at fairygodboss.com. See you next time.